Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Thursday, June 29th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words as they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? That chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work, that tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet, or vice versa. It's a tool you can, I have been using for almost 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you choose to do that, Uh, It will download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they do that and actively use these tools in their lives. Secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581. If you do that, press 1 on the phone. It will put a little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. Greatly appreciate it whenever anybody does that, because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. 
the intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's far easier to do when you let us know how this is landing for you. Is it feeling relevant? Is it assisting you in applying these tools in your life and understanding them more deeply? So that's our invitation. We have plenty of time today. We can cut our time short a little bit today if we wish because we're going to play a, a file for an audio replay from Michael and Jeannie. We have a support group tonight. It's uh, available absolutely free from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. Most Tuesday and Thursday nights we have this support group. And um, all the information you would need to join us or to forward that information to somebody else that might be interested in joining us is available at the mindshiftersacademy.org website. And that's just another resource that we make available to people to try and help um, extend the exposure to these tools and the life-changing benefits, life-improving benefits, since I suppose lives can change in any direction. And um, so you'll find if you go there, you'll find some curated audio files, best of, you'll find the mental short version of the Reality Management Worksheet, which is what I use to introduce people to the process in my office. You'll find the forgiveness patter, as I call it, that I have in both the PDF form and the audio file of me reciting it that you can tap into and just have it play while you do a little meditation whenever you've got a little extra time when you're doing the worksheet process. And um, there's a, a, a an audio, a couple of audio files there of a program I've developed over the years titled uh, "Process for Grief and Loss," and uh, lots and lots of uh, audio files, including the first hour of the audio files that we did last year when we were doing the review of the Way of Mastery with commentary. So please feel free to take advantage of those resources and uh, and spread them around. Uh, tell others. Um, the other resource that I haven't mentioned in a while, and I like to throw out the request, if you've got a favorite spiritual teacher or podcast that you listen to or book you've read recently that you think would be good for me to interview them either here on the Mind Shifters Radio or for the Journey Stream on Your Mind podcast. I will gladly accept any recommendations you have. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. You can also email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. Again, that's w-h-y-a-g AIN.org. And um, every once in a while I get a, a headhunter for the podcast that contacts me and says, somebody's paid me to try and get them booked on podcasts. And every once in a while I get one of those that is um, relevant, actually relevant to the Journey Stream 
mission of trying to help rewrite the narrative on mental health to one in which optimal health and well-being are possible and expected. And um, so I think I mentioned yesterday I had one of those that went quite nicely with a gentleman from the United Kingdom. And um, he's got plenty of lived experience with mental health issues and childhood trauma and young adult and adult trauma and came through it on the other end and became a therapist in his own right and was still struggling and suffering until he discovered what he called this spiritual approach, this very practical spiritual approach. And it transformed what he does in his own life and what he does in working with clients these days. So if you want stuff like that, please go to either theonyourmindpodcast.org or you can go to journeysdream.org slash podcast and check out the over 130 interviews that we've done in the past three-plus years. And again, it's another very powerful free resource if it's useful to you just use it if it's useful to you and you think others might benefit please spread the word pass it along this is all done uh, from the not-for-profit perspective it's all done with the vast majority of people donating their time and it's all done with the intention of offering tools and resources and perspectives to people that will be advantageous, that will be to their best interests, as primarily as an alternative to the allopathic medical model, which says whenever there's something you don't like in your life, you take a pill for it. And our one of the big portions of our mission there is to help dispel that myth and give people other resources to use. I'm also um, recently become aware that there's a um, well, I'll save that for another time. Anyway, so here we are. We've been reading from the book A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg. Yesterday I branched out a little bit from that and read from the book by Anthony DeMello titled Awareness, which is one of those books, I, there are a few of them now, that I I go through once a year or, or more often. And, um, and those that are on that list, just for those that might be curious, the list of books I go through repeatedly um, aside from dipping back into the way of mastery, which is probably the book I've read more often than any other book. But other books on my yearly cycle of repeating, at least once a year, sometimes more often, include the Course in Miracles, A Course in Miracles Made Easy, and The Tao Made Easy by Alan Cohen, both of them by Alan Cohen. 
There's also Pema Children has several books that I put in that rotation. Um, you know, um, the titles are escaping me, and I'm trying to flip through my Kindle list to find them, and they're not here because some of them I, I listen to and uh, audible. But the Tao made easy, and A Course in Miracles made easy, and um, The Way of Mastery, and Anthony DeMello's book, Awareness. These are some of those books that I go back to over and over again because they're just so clear, so clean, so full of direct observations, so rich with the invitation to change the way any of us live our lives, you know, perceive things. Um, The invitation is to live more in direct observation. The invitation is to question everything. The invitation is to continue to work with yourself, with your mind, with your conclusions, with your trauma energies, until you are able to improve your quality of life. The assumption is that it's possible to improve your experience of life. It's possible to find more ways to look at the world that bring you joy and aliveness and gratitude and compassion. Um, And we are encouraging people to continue that process or that search, whichever you want to call it, until you're satisfied, until you feel like you've gotten everything you can out of life. At least as far as it goes focusing on the things you actually have control over. So call in number again is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. What's on your mind today? Where I left off with the walk in the physical reading from those essays was with the, the brief essay titled, Beingness Has No Lack. Beneath the noise, beneath all of the judgments, beneath all of the comparisons, beneath all of the cultural conditioning, you are the fullness of life, of energy, of consciousness that surpasses all physical things. And this is true no matter what your local reality experience might be. That's the last paragraph in that essay. The next essay is titled, The One and the Many. It's essay 123. And the essay reads, We are one, capital O-N-E, and yet we are individual. That is a great truth. From our local perspective, those two statements may seem like a paradox. And yet they are not. In other systems, you are aware of your oneness with all that is, 
and yet also your individuality, which is precious and preserved. You have likely forgotten that you are connected to everything else because you agreed to adopt that restriction in appearance only in order to have the human experience. Even though it appears differently, the truth remains. You are what you were created to be. You can never be separate from all that is. You can only agree to have an apparent experience of separation so that you can participate in an experiential expansion. When physical life ends, you become aware of all the ways you affected everyone else in your entire life. Near-death experiencers describe this as a life review process. And they describe it as being firsthand. You experience exactly what you caused others to experience. You know that because you've done to another, and whatever you've done to another, you've done to yourself, for the other is a part of you. And this is why love is such an important theme. Love is reflective of the unity that is native to our being. Love is, a, is reflective of what you really are. Love is the body of the one being working in concert with all its other parts. Treat the other as yourself because the other is yourself. Now, in that preceding paragraph, it talks about how you've caused this pain and suffering to others. And in this work, we understand it somewhat differently. That each one of us creates our own experience of life. And there's one of those glitches in, this, in these writings, because this, this writing, and Michael Singer's writing, and Guy Finley's writing, all of it, has the fundamental observation that we're all creating our own experience of life. And then every once in a while it'll have a statement like, here's the pain you caused somebody else. Well, if everybody's creating their own experience of life, I'm not creating their pain and they're not creating mine, especially the emotional pain. So you might come back to this and say, well, just like they said earlier, it seems like a paradox, but it's not. Or you could come back to it and say, okay, that's kind of sloppy language. And if they took a little bit more time, if they thought about it from what Michael Rice calls the regulatory speech perspective, they could rephrase it in a way that incorporates these other observations they've made about how each of us is creating our own experience of life in each moment with how we choose to interpret and respond to life events, and each of us is creating our own sense of being offended or our emotion of fear and grief and anger and hurt and confusion and guilt and shame. And they acknowledge that. And then, because of whatever factors you might call, you know, uh, maybe they haven't been exposed to the concept, maybe they're just a little bit sloppy in their writing, they make a statement like, the pain you've caused somebody else. Now, as soon as I did that, as soon as I said that, I flashed on, there was a time about four years ago, or a little over four years ago, where I was trying to pump um, 
a lot more of my time, intelligence, money, and energy into gaining more exposure for the tools that Michael and Jeannie promote. And as part of it, one of my connections was somebody that I had a lot of respect for. He invited me to this weekend of powerful speakers, and one of those speakers presented himself as having a publishing company and having tremendous success in helping people get their message out there and having special interest in the message I talked about. And so he, you know, presented a good game. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll throw some money into this and throw some effort into this and start having him as a coach. And and basically he ripped me off for many, many thousands of dollars. Now, he's responsible for what he did. And yet, all of the upset, the mental and emotional upset, the gut punch that I felt, the sick to my stomach, the anger, the frustration, the hurt, the confusion, the feeling stupid for trusting him, all of that stuff that I generated, I generated. And because I had these tools to use, because I I knew to use EFT tapping, I knew to use an endless stream of reality management worksheets, I knew to use the targeted journaling that Michael calls the mind shifter tool. And because I did do that work, I was able to sever that relationship without attacking him. I I was able to stand up for myself and not send him any more money, even though I had contracted to give him considerably more money. I was able to be respectful of him and his name. I didn't start trashing his name. I, to this day, I haven't told people you know, on this show or in other places what his name was, and I haven't tried to ruin his reputation. And I uncovered, I don't know, maybe more, somewhere between six and 12 different really deep, emotional upsets that I'd been carrying from, you know, as early as five years old and 15 years old and 21 years old that all were getting resonated by the interpretation I chose and placed on those life events. He did not cause those upsets. He's responsible for charging me for something that he wasn't doing. He's responsible for his lack of integrity. He's not responsible for the upset I created around it. And I can tell you that with absolute certainty because he's never apologized, he's never returned a single penny, and I have dismantled the upset. I, within just a couple weeks of that happening, I no longer had any sleepless nights. I no longer had any waves of rage when I would think back on it. And I started to look for, okay, what's the blessing in this? How is this going to work out better than I could have imagined? How is this going to lead me in different directions? How are some of the things that I chose to do through this still viable for me to maintain as activities to help promote Michael and Jeannie's work. So when something like this reading from a walk in the physical says, 
we review at our physical death all of these things that we did to hurt others, I view it as just a, a kind of a sloppy writing because in other parts of this work it says very clearly you can't ever be hurt and therefore the people around you, their true essence, can't ever be hurt. You're not causing anybody else's emotions and they're not causing yours. We have the experience of being separated. We create the experience of pain, fear, sadness, guilt, shame, frustration, grief, etc. And yet, all of it is simply a way to expand creation. Experientially expand creation. And another way to look at it is... All of that work, which creates tension and upset and what they call these highly constrained, you know, physical situations, constraint sets, is it gives me an opportunity to practice teaching only love, choosing for love in more and more difficult situations. And for the analogy of of going to the gymnasium to try and build muscle in my arms or my legs or my back, how do I do that? I start by lifting light weights, and I gradually increase the weight I'm lifting, and I work the muscles harder, and as I rest them afterwards, they grow and strengthen from their previous state, and I build the capacity to lift more and more weight. In a similar fashion, the more I practice choosing for love, even when someone has ripped me off for thousands of dollars, the better I get at choosing for love in more and more difficult situations, or what they call in this work, constraint sets. The next essay is 124. is titled, Your Body is an Experience. And the essay reads, Your body is an experience only. It is not a fundamentally real object. Your body is a set of constraints that your consciousness is experiencing because of a well-defined physical rule set within the space of consciousness. There is not a fundamentally real piece of flesh that you are inhabiting. Rather, your body exists as an experience that is occurring within you as consciousness. And this is very similar to what Michael Rice talks about in some of his lectures where he says, look, he likes to quote Einstein. He said, when it comes to such things as matter, we have been all wrong. What we've heretofore called matter is energy, energy which has been so lowered in its vibration as to become perceptible to the senses. In truth, all matter is just energy which has been slowed down. There is no such thing as matter. It's just another form of energy. And then Michael goes on to say that if the antenna of your eye were able to keep up with the rate of spin or vibration of the energy that has been slowed down to appear as though it's a desk or a wall or a physical body, etc., you would not see a desk or a wall or a physical body. You would see nested frequencies of energy within nested frequencies of energy within nested frequencies of energy. Michael says you'd see a whirling mass of protons, neutrons, and electrons. 
they're all just words. The more our, our scientists study these things and the words they've given these things, the more they see that they're just energy packets. And the more they study the energy packets, the more they realize these energy packets pop in and out of existence. And these energy packets are dramatically affected by the process of observing them and measuring them. So this work says your body is simply an experience. It's not a fundamentally real object. Your body is an experience that happens within your consciousness, and you are that consciousness. The next paragraph here says, you already existed before you engaged in the experience of a physical body. And you will exist after that bodily experience ends. Just as a movie screen exits before and after an image is projected upon it, your awareness exists before and after the experience of the body appears within it. However, many of us do not remember existing before the body. That is because of the veil of forgetfulness. That veil is tied to our acceptance of this bodily constraint set. It feels to us like the body is all we have ever been because that is the nature of a highly specialized experience as being human. Regardless of the veiling or the covering up or the forgetting that occurred, so that you could have the focused human experience and in having the human experience remember nothing beyond it regardless of all that your true nature stands firm still exists is not affected positively or negatively one way or another your true loving nature does not give way its existence is sure and ever-present. It is only within that sure and ever-present true nature that the experience of the body with its limited perceptions and recollections can exist. Your experience as a body occurs within your true nature, which existed before that experience and will exist after that experience. The next essay has the word religion in the title, and before I even read the essay, I just want to make a comment. Please watch whatever might get stirred up in you through all of these concepts, all of these ideas, all of these invitations and perspectives. I was with somebody yesterday, just an absolutely brilliant, charming person, and I made a statement about how all religion is dot, dot, dot. And it's not a judgmental statement, it's a description. And the interpretation that the other person made was clearly negative because immediately their demeanor changed and a look of some kind of contraction or negativity spread across their face. 
also it also brings me back to recently in our support group one of our members pretty dramatically misperceived what was being talked about and then felt compelled before uh, the group was over to say very strongly that he thinks it's a bad thing or it's, it's wrong to slam religions and there's a lot of good in organized religion, et cetera, et cetera, giving the very strong impression that he thought we were slamming organized religions. Please understand, it would be exactly the opposite of everything we're trying to teach here and invite people into if we started slamming anything, whether it's organized religion or a different political party. It's just, it would be the opposite of what we're teaching. It would make us consummate hypocrites to slam someone or something else. I know it happens, and and when it does, it makes the person who's doing it and teaching this kind of work, it makes them step into the role of hypocrite in that moment. So please listen with that understanding that if you if you interpret something that's being said here as a slam on anyone or anything a criticism of, a negative judgment of anyone or anything, it's the opposite of what we're teaching. And either we are misspeaking or we are not congruent with our message or you're interpreting something through an old filter that wasn't intended by the speaker. So the title of this essay is Beingness Transcends Religion. And this essay reads, God has no religion except that we do. As a part of the one mind, as a part of creation, we've created these concepts of religion. We've created the word, we've given it its definition, we've created the rules and guidelines for each of the dozens and dozens of religions that exist in humanity. It's all been created by human mind, by human effort. And many of them were created with good intentions. So the essay goes on and says, As we exist in a world of form, we come to understand reality within the context of that form. We impose meaning upon the form we have experienced. We formalize and institutionalize our interpretations. And we are often happy to buy into the interpretations that are passed to us and we pass them along ourselves. Now in spiritual matters, we tend to attribute the very real internal experience of the divine to the forms themselves. But the forms, these ideas, the objects, the traditions, do not have any fundamental existence. They are but shadows arising within the one, capital O-N-E, as is everything that is made of substance or form. It is a shadow arising within consciousness. 
They are fragments and not the whole, W-H-O-L-E. No fragment can fully satisfy because our true nature is not fragmented at all. Beingness needs no name. Beingness transcends all names. This reminds me of the story that Pierre Pradervan told where he went to an imam and Pierre was full of himself because he thought he knew what the definition of God was and he wanted the imam to say, so what do you Muslims say God is? And Pierre was going to one-up him and trap him and prove him wrong. And the imam led the way and embraced Pierre and said, well, Pierre, if you took all of the water on all of the oceans, lakes, rivers, streams, creeks, on the entire world, on the entire globe, as ink, and you used all of the leaves and sticks and trees and branches as pens, and you wrote for eternity, you would never exhaust all the names for God, all the descriptions of God. That's essentially what they're saying here. Beingness has no need of a name. Beingness transcends language and therefore all names. Beingness can arise into the experience of limited perspective and it can temporarily assign the power to the shadowy forms occurring within it. But such forms are not truly reflective of the perfect unity and limitlessness of what quote, capital T, truly, capital I, is the truth of all life, the truth of the, the actuality of life. Goes beyond all forms, goes beyond all names, goes beyond all perception and definition. The essay continues and says, the true path is love. Now, love is just a word, and so... What meaning do you give that word? And if you define it as agape or brotherly love or erotic love, or now you've, you've contracted and you've minimized what this is pointing at. Love is this word they're using for the energy of creation, the energy of all life, the energy of consciousness, all of it. In other words, we're pointing at something that goes beyond words, each new heartbeat. So please don't get hung up in any of these words. Let the listening and the playing with these concepts expand your mind. How do you expand your mind? You begin by questioning everything you think you know. You question every belief you have. And you watch the process of questioning and observing and, and breathing into and watch how it resonates with different energies within your physical energy system. So do you feel tight? Do you feel tense? Do you feel heavy? Do you feel light? Do you feel like you just fell asleep and you spaced out and you don't remember the last three sentences? Just watch the experience. 
This essay goes back to saying, the true path is love. Love transcends all restrictions, transcends all requirements, transcends all definitions. Love cannot be contained within a given set of ideas or practices. And yet, it can operate through all of them. Love can mean both structure or lack of structure. It can mean belief or lack of beliefs. The living power of love thrives both within and beyond all forms. All forms that you experience, and this extends through our entire universe. Love goes beyond everything you might think of as the universe. Love is the energy of consciousness and creation within which the universe arises. I hope you get an inkling when I say that, of how impossible it is to conceptualize this with our tiny little human minds, brains. And remember, all of this work is predicated upon the idea that who you are as you listen to this goes beyond your ability to comprehend even yourself because you've agreed to this limiting process of forgetting your true nature, forgetting your non-physical existence, forgetting your connection to everything in oneness, forgetting that you are part of the one mind of consciousness. And that's how you've come into having an experience of being in a physical body as a limited human being. And so you cannot possibly comprehend even your true nature with the conscious logical mind, which is why we advocate using breath techniques or reality management worksheets or journaling sessions or meditation so that you can put aside the conscious logical mind and ask to be shown something else, to have an experience that goes beyond words. So the, the last sentence I read was, the living power of love thrives both within and beyond all of the forms of our entire universe. And then it says, may our human practices align with that living power. May our religion be the religion of compassion, the religion of kindness, the religion of humility, the religion of personal ownership, the religion of bravery, and the religion of selfless love. Whether that occurs within any named structure or within whatever structure or form, we genuinely feel called to express it. So what this means is, may these qualities be our goal, whether we're practicing Catholicism or Christianity or Buddhism or Judaism or Zoroastrianism or you know, name it, name any practice that you feel called to. Within those practices, May you be called to experience and grow and strengthen your ability to be kind, compassionate, humble, self-responsible, 
brave and altruistic. When you awaken to the realization that since all beings and consciousness and energy is connected, you are connected to everyone and everything. I was reading the book, The Tale of Desero, and um, it talks in there, uh, teaching children how every action carries consequences. We are, we are, every energy that we create, every thought we engage in, every emotion we create for ourselves, every choice we make in relating to uh, ourselves or somebody else is really a way of relating to ourselves. You know, this is ancient scriptures that say, what you do to your, the least of your brethren you've done to me, we're all connected. The next essay is 126. It's titled, Love is the Absolute Foundation. So if you don't know what love is, and you don't know how to describe love, and you don't know what the word love means, here they're giving you a definition for love. Love is the absolute foundation upon which everything is built. Consciousness, all physical matter, all interaction between forms, all creation is built on this foundational energy, this foundational experience, this foundational consciousness. And we, we use the word love for that. Hopefully you can get a sense of how that's woefully lacking as a description, as a word. But it's pointing toward the experience of what is the foundation of everything What's love? It's just what everything is built on. It's what all life and all consciousness arises from or within. The essay goes on and says, there is not one process that did not begin in love and will not end in love. The truth is not hard or cold ever. The truth, capital T truth, always falls back to love. If something appears hard or cold, that is just an appearance. Appearances can last a long time. Appearances can seem very real as we buy into them and believe our own interpretations about them. And yet, we only have the power to do so because we are part of the one, capital O-N-E, the one sovereign consciousness. So we're using the power of consciousness and the power of love to create an appearance that there's something called fear or there's something called pain. And we use that being a part of the one sovereign consciousness and choose to deeply experience even temporary limited interpretations for a while. But the greater truth, the everlasting, unshakable bedrock of all existence is this thing we call love, is this stuff we call love, is this awareness we call love. Freedom, joy, 
and love are the true root of all creation. Every single thing always, always occurs as a result of the unfathomable depths of love giving rise to it. Love in all conditions giving rise to it. Love in every circumstance giving rise to it. Reality systems come and go. Complex patterns in the tapestry spun out of love, and they're spun because of love. They come and go. The tapestry may contain horrifying images, but no more than the greatness of love that gave rise to them and that expands its own creative depths even through those horrifying images. We are free to buy into our interpretations of less than love. We are so free that we can even do that. But we cannot ever truly escape the truth, capital T truth, of the freedom, joy, and love of our own being. Even as we take temporary experiential sojourns seemingly far away from that freedom and joy, we are still within that energy of love and freedom and joy. Love cannot be overcome, and we are love. So what shall we fear? Nothing. Once you see, this is from the Way of Mastery Lesson 7 in the Shadow of Fear story, once you see how you're creating fear and in response to what and how great you are, in truth, your true essence is in relation to those things you've come to believe are bigger than you. Once you see that, you will never fear fear again. You may have the energy of fear running through you because you're connected to all other minds in, in consciousness, and yet once you've seen the truth of it, you will not let it drive your behaviors. So that's all I'm going to read for today. We have time for comments, questions, answers, testimonials, 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, you can share with us. As I mentioned, our second hour today is going to be A tape played for Michael and Jeannie. But we do have about eight minutes before we need to do that. If somebody has a comment or a question, just press 1 on your phone after calling 563-999-3581. And in lieu of that, we have one more show tomorrow before the holiday weekend. I'll remind people that we have a support group tonight from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central. Again, any information you would need to join us absolutely free is available at mindshiftersacademy.org. And if nobody has a comment or a question, I'll thank you all for being here, and I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. 
we actually are love and everything else is false, this is your second hour. This work did not source from its author. It is a synthesis of a body of work that has existed on planet Earth for thousands of years and has come forward from the interaction, the ideas, and the love of many wonderful people who've been my teachers and my support system. Deep gratitude and thanks for your caring. You were in my heart for eternity. Appreciation to all of you, known and unknown, who've contributed to and supported this work. Is this book for you? Have you ever had conflict in your relationships, attempted the geographic cure, tried unsuccessfully to change others? Have you ever had thoughts like, why is this happening to me again? Why are they doing this to me again? Why am I doing this to myself again? Why can't life just cooperate? This book presents practical tools for change. People who participate in our workshops report significantly improved relationships, creativity, finances, and eating habits. Many say their health and energy levels are better and that their mental functions and emotional stability are enhanced. We are told that victimhood and addictions drop away, spiritual health increases, and peace of mind becomes their normal and natural state. Please read this book for an overview before focusing on its subtle points. It takes time to build the brain cells for significant change to take place and to understand some of the ideas that will be presented in this work. Brain cells are the body's storage system for information, and building brain cells refers not to building physical structure, but to storing information for future recall. Using the suggested tools will answer questions, fill in the blanks, and open the far-reaching implications of this work. Like any new language, this material may be confusing at first. It might be all Greek to you. A learning curve is normal with any new information. Unraveling old patterns and teaching your mind new ways to function takes time. Beware the tendency of the mind to reject what is inconsistent with your current beliefs. I suggest that you set aside anything that does not fit your thinking and see how those pieces work as you build new information into brain cells. Invest the time and you will be amazed at what you will comprehend from these pages. After intense interaction, it will feel as if a mental switch is thrown and understanding falls into place. To reap endless benefits from this work does not require belief, understanding, or agreement. The skeptic who dares simply put the pen to the paper and actually uses these tools will produce dramatic, life-changing results. A quote I enjoy is one from a gentleman named Marcel Proust, who lived back in the 1800s and early 1900s, and he said, the challenge of life consists not in exploring new landscapes, but in developing new eyes. As a result of completing this text, the reality structure in your mind will change. Life will be seen with new eyes. This book will seem to change, but of course, it remains the same. Your perception of this material and the world will shift as new levels of application and meaning unfold. This book is designed to be a source of clarity and empowerment now and in the future. To receive full benefit from its design, customize this book by writing in it. Please write, scribble, express yourself, feel, think, get messy, be elegant. Contemplate, create, fabricate, reason, analyze, compose, draw, play, love, reflect, get crazy, get sane. Surprisingly, as you use these tools, aspects of life that once seemed miserable will become enjoyable. For instance, if you have a pattern where it seems you have no choices in life, use of the tools transforms those times into an empowering opportunity to learn choice. 
For some, their rage, grief, or fear seems uncontrollable. With tools, surfacing the uncontrollable becomes an opportunity to gain freedom and to develop joy, strength, and aliveness through the healing of destructive energies. You may find yourself yelling at or arguing with this book, or me, please be gentle. Talk or scream if necessary. It can be an important step into sanity. This manual is designed to bring up and support the healing of any energy in you that undermines aliveness. During this process, you will encounter everything in your mind, including enormous love. Richard, the character in this book, represents a composite of a thousand conversations with real people. Any resemblance to people you know is purely intentional and highly probable. If he triggers issues and feelings for you that you would prefer to avoid, great. Be aware that your healing journey is about to take another step. If you identify with him, this text offers you ample space to look at yourself. Beware the tendency to think that he or words on a page could possibly be responsible for anything you feel. However, he may give you some opportunities to heal. The dialogue between myself and the troubled Richard is a fast-paced, nurturing, and enlightening dialogue. You'll be gripped by the way he unravels the blocks that keep him from receiving the love for which he yearns. You will cheer as he rebuilds his understanding of the dynamics of his life, his confused childhood, and his muddled, seemingly hopeless relationships. You will join him in learning step-by-step -step tools that will enhance your life, and you don't need to be in turmoil or upset for your life to get better. People from all over the world, including those who have created wonderful lives for themselves, have benefited from refining their life skills by using these tools. This process requires courage and will not always be Dr. Feelgood. However, the rewards and results will impact you and your family in wonderful and beautiful ways for eternity. Blessings, love, and support on your journey. And these are some of my notes that I decided to include as a forward to the book. This body of work presents tools which can be used to manage your mind, body, relationships, and life. The first decades of my life, I lived without them. Approximately 25 years ago, as the result of the need to heal myself, I searched for tools with which I could unload the burdens I had accumulated. This book is one of the results of that search. This work is not the product of any curriculum. It is written from my own experience and is offered with sincere humility. I know of no book from which inner work can be learned, though thousands of books have been written about it. Acquiring this knowledge is a process. None of what appears on these pages is original, save the synthesis of the material and some of the conclusions for which I take full responsibility and invite your input. Nothing herein should be construed as medical advice as each idea is intended for support of the reader's spiritual process and self-healing. Using these tools calls for a different mindset than the all-too-common victim or hero attitude and requires time, work, and willingness. The tools work. The rewards are extraordinary. Take the time to build the foundation and understand the philosophy of this work and you will create a toolbox which makes these tools for life usable. Your life is about to change. The amount of material covered in this book is enormous and rarely would it be possible to comprehend it all in one reading. To you, the reader, I suggest digest slowly. Be patient. Ten years from now, on the 20th or 90th reading, 
Due to the nature of this work, this book will say many new things to you. I suggest you read as much of the text as makes sense to you and do the worksheet process. If you lose the train of thought or confusion surfaces, go back and do the worksheet. This book is not meant to be grasped in one reading. Many people find that a combination of the written course material and the audio or videotapes helps them grasp this information more quickly. I realize this may sound like a bit of a commercial, but we found that exposing people to this work through as many different senses as possible helps them integrate and put the tools to use more quickly. When you see this workshop on video or hear it on cassette tape, it is almost as though it produces a three-dimensional or a cellular comprehension. It is a difficult effect to explain and even more difficult to achieve through a linear presentation such as happens with written material. The goal of this text is to provide a theoretical framework from which to view life differently. Above all, I wish to stress the simplicity of the process you are about to engage in, though it may appear complex at first. Truth is complex to a complex mind and simple to a simplified mind. I understand that scientific convention and the rational mind require that I cite references for each new statement. I have chosen to bypass convention. I will make many statements that are based solely on my observations after 25 years of doing this work. I invite you to disbelieve everything I say and test it for yourself. Verification will come from the fact that you will find the tools work. I invite correction and feedback on this material and present what I consider to be useful observations even though they do not fit convention. I am in agreement with Albert Einstein who said, one thing I have learned in a long life that all our science measured against reality and in these terms, actuality, is primitive and childlike. The scientific method provides a platform, as it were, from which to view the world. Any theory breaks down where its foundation is flawed and becomes provable from within its own errors. There was a time when everyone knew the world was flat. Thousands died of scurvy years after nutritional deficiency was known to be at least part of that disease and limes were proposed as a solution. The first physician to suggest that medicine men spread disease with dirty hands was scorned as a fool. Many so-called scientific minds resist change. Scientific conventions seem to change only when the old beliefs die. You will hear a lot about the law of love in this book. It is the guardrail on the highway of reason. Information available to a mind is limited by the mindset of the thinker. Do you see all the things you love about a person when anger rears its head? No, we are cut off from our loving thoughts by anger, cut off from the law of love. The intellect, because of the way our mindset limits available information, can logically take you anywhere its foundation is set to go. It can justify anything up to and including murder. Love, as a condition in the mind, inoculates the intellect against foolish and senseless behavior. Lack of awareness of the law of love is the recipe for insanity because without it the mind must operate under the rules that produce insanity. The law of love is the only pathway to peace of mind which is a prerequisite to sanity and happiness. The goal of this work is summed up in the story of a child of four who had shown an interest in geography. One day her mother cut up a map of the world to make a puzzle thinking it would keep the little girl busy for a few days. Fifteen minutes after receiving the map, the little girl had assembled the puzzle. Her mother was shocked. She couldn't believe it. How did you put the puzzle together so quickly? Even I couldn't have done that. The girl replied, Well, Mom, 
I noticed when you were cutting out the map of the world, there was a picture of a little girl on the other side. When I put the little girl together, the whole world came together. Enjoy. A quote from the front of the book from Henry David Thoreau. A quote we entitled The Dilemma. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. To be awake is to be alive. I never met a man who is quite awake. And again from Henry David Thoreau, a quote we title, The Solution. If you advance confidently in the direction of your dreams and endeavor to live the life you have imagined, you will meet with successes unexpected in common hours. You will pass an invisible boundary. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundation under them. And again, from the front of our book, Life with Tools, Life Without Tools. Life with tools is awakening and delight. Information with tools is power. Power with tools is service. Relationship with tools is interdependence. Knowledge with tools is safety. Commitment with tools is a blessing. Abundance with tools is easy. Health with tools is natural. Learning with tools is education. Ambition with tools is accomplished. A world with tools is peaceful. Having tools and using them leads to aliveness. Life without tools is sleep and hell. Information without tools is impotence. Power without tools is dictatorship. Relationship without tools is codependence. Knowledge without tools is dangerous. Commitment without tools is hopeless. Abundance without tools is loss. Health without tools is impossible. Learning without tools is chaos. Ambition without tools is corruption. A world without tools is war. Having tools and not using them is a life without tools. You're invited to copy, share, live, teach, and support this work freely. For additional copies of this book, it can be downloaded freely from our website, www.whyagain.com. That's www.whyagain.com. For ordering more copies of this book or our tapes, our toll-free number is 877-949-2424. That is 877-WHY-AGAIN. Our address is Route 3, Box 3280-3280, Theodosia, T-H-E-O-D-O-S is in Sam, I-A, Theodosia, Missouri, M-O, 65761. A part of the way we support our work is through the sale of our products. Inviting people to purchase copies of this tape would be appreciated. And if people aren't in a position to purchase the tapes, please copy and share it with them freely. Invite them, if they're in the position to and benefit from this work, to support us 
Our commitment is to take these tools to every mind on the planet. We invite your support. Thank you. Richard, a successful man in his late 30s, was on his way out west following the breakup of another marriage when he called early one morning. I just uh, finished reading the book, The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. The friend who gave it to me uh, told me about your work, and, and he suggested I give you a call when I got to Springfield. He said that you might have some answers for me and help me make sense of things. Now, I, I don't know, maybe it's a waste of time for us to meet, but my life is such a mess, I, I'm really desperate. Springfield is an hour and a half drive northwest of Heartland, where we do our intensive workshops. I had a few days between finishing our summer season and leaving to go on tour, so I invited Richard to meet with me later that morning. He agreed. It was a clear, crisp day, and the leaves were taking on the fall colors. As I watched him climb from his car, Richard appeared taller than I'd imagined. He was wearing jeans and a navy blazer over a faded blue t-shirt and running shoes instead of the mountain boots I'd expected for someone traveling to the west. He appeared as if he could fit in anywhere and, and be at home with almost anyone. His face showed intelligence and sensitivity, but carried obvious traces of sadness. The slump of his shoulders indicated what appeared to be sizable emotional burdens. His tales of broken relationships and marriages started before we even settled into the house. Typical of many of us, before we finally look for alternatives to the way we've been taught to live, Richard expressed frustration, anger, and fear. He seemed to flounder in his pain, using words I have come to know are born in the abuse we visit upon ourselves and others when we blame them. There was an uncertainty in his voice and what seemed to be a controlled anger bordering on violence. I interpreted this to be a product of tremendous frustration and feeling out of control, issues I encounter often among the individuals with whom I work. Sometimes I feel so hopeless. I wonder if there really are any answers. Sounds like things are pretty tough for you right now. How about taking a deep breath and, and just being still for a moment? Fortunately, these things pass. We have some powerful tools to assist in speeding up the process and assuring a future that unfolds more easily and peacefully. Has anything like this ever happened to you before? Uh, have you ever felt any of these feelings previously? Richard admitted that many times he'd experienced these same feelings of rage and went on to describe the circumstances surrounding several relationships that had ended abruptly. He related his belief that no matter what he did or how he acted, relationships and life were hopeless. He explained that he was moving again to escape the painful memories that haunted him in each city that had been his home. Clearly, he felt victimized. He was alone and confused about what was going on in his life. His dilemma was not knowing what to do. He was afraid of repeating his mistakes. This prevented him from making real choices. At the same time, he was defensive about his past having anything to do with the present. He made it perfectly clear that he wanted only to talk about what was going on in his life now, not something that happened years earlier. I suggest you notice, Richard, that each situation in your life has one thing in common. Every time it happens, you're there. You're the common factor. You play a part, consciously or unconsciously, in every event of your life. Are you telling me that I wanted those things to happen to me? Wanted? No. Participated in, yes. 
When you can see and take responsibility for your part in events, things will change. Responsibility is not a weight to carry, but a key to reclaiming your power. Right. So everything's my fault. And, and if I just accept blame and admit that I'm guilty, then everything will be fine. Is that it? Is that your point? I'm not to blame. If, if, if you want to blame somebody, blame them. Uh, I've been the victim too many times. I, I'm not going to let this happen to me again. Richard's teeth were clenched. His shoulders were rigid as he glared at me through unblinking eyes. I thought to myself, if his mind is as closed as his body language suggests, my work is definitely cut out for me. Looks like maybe you're closing up, Richard. Take a breath. I'm here to support you. My words were take responsibility, not you're to blame. This work is about releasing guilt and blame by seeing your own patterns and healing what is in us that sets up those patterns. My goal is to assist you in recognizing, dealing responsibly with, and undoing your part in each painful situation in your life, and learning how to do things differently. Blame is an escape from responsibility and a way to give away your power. If what happens in your life is everybody else's fault, then why is it that you're the only one that's been there every time? If they're the ones with the problems, why are you the one with the pain? The issue that had Richard feeling so much pain was his why is this happening to me again question, which so many of us ask repeatedly as we go through life. It does not matter what the actual event in the outside world is. It could be a combination of relationship issues, employment problems, financial difficulties, or any number of other possibilities. No matter what the circumstances, there is always one common factor. The person having the experience is always involved. all feelings is under the control of the person experiencing it. However, if we refuse responsibility, it will seem that others inflict our pain upon us and that it is therefore inescapable. The pain Richard was experiencing was a result of an internal process. It was not caused by others. In order for Richard to heal, it was essential that he step apart from his internal dialogue that convinced him that everyone else was the problem in his life. He had to let go long enough to hear something other than what was going on in his head. I hear you saying that you've had many unhappy experiences in your relationships and I understand that your mind makes it look like the source of your pain is outside of you. To think that the cause is external is confusing the trigger for your pain with the mechanism that delivers it. The pain you feel is not dependent on outside events and no one but you can create what you feel inside. You're just handing me more guilt. And, I, and all I want now is to make sure that what I've been going through doesn't happen again. When I introduced Richard to the idea that we're each responsible for our own pain, he heard, as many of us do, when someone points out that we may have erred, something different. I spoke of responsibility. He interpreted my words to mean other than what I intended. This brought to light an essential element in the healing process. There is a difference between what happens in the world and the mind's interpretation of those events. One triggers feelings, the other causes them. 
Grasping this concept is a key to personal empowerment and the release of pain. What Richard perceived as the cause of his unhappiness was nothing more than a trigger that served to bring to awareness an experience stored within him, one which he had repeated so often it was now old and familiar. Richard, if you want to create your life differently, you must live from a place of knowing that you are the root cause of all that you experience. Knowing that you are the cause in your life rather than continuously being triggered into old patterns is a source of empowerment. The thought that we are responsible for our lives can be difficult at first. He appeared to flip-flop between his hunger for understanding and his resistance to taking responsibility. For instance, Richard, a few minutes ago, I spoke to you of responsibility. What you heard was guilt, fault, and blame. As you listened to your internal dialogue, it informed you of the potential pain inherent in being to blame. Next came the defenses you've built against being at fault and guilty, your mind's interpretation of responsibility. The reason you don't escape your pain when you leave town or a relationship is that the pain is internal and you take it with you when you go. The fact that you can hide your pain successfully does not mean that it's gone. There is a toll for hanging on to a negative energy, even when it is not being consciously experienced. Anyone who just says the right words can trigger what you are trying to hide from yourself. Your pain is caused by the energy you are holding, not by them. I, I, I don't get this, this cause and trigger stuff. Let's see if an example will help to make sense of that. Imagine we place a person from the jungle beside a river and ask him to figure out what causes a drawbridge to open. He observes, time after time, that the bridge goes up when a boat arrives. He also notes that when the boat passes, the bridge lowers. Our observer, not being familiar with bridges, comes to the obvious conclusion that boats cause bridges to go up. We know boats can't cause bridges to move either up or down, though they are the trigger that begins the process. Being familiar with bridges, we know the bridge tender sees a boat and puts the bridge's internal mechanism into motion with the flip of a switch. The switch delivers power to a motor and that in turn causes a bridge to go up. What if we assign our observer the job of making sure the drawbridge remains down forever? If he clings to the false idea that boats cause bridges to go up, he certainly has his work cut out for him. To accomplish his goal, he may have to change the direction of every boat that approaches, potentially every boat in the world. If, on the other hand, he understands that there is an internal mechanism lifting the bridge, he only needs to get inside the control room and clip one wire. The bridge will remain forever still. I, I see what you mean, Michael, and, and forgive me for being blunt, but so what? Richard, this is a key. This is a major key, this idea. Your reality arises from inside of you. My words are just a trigger for what shows up in your mind. The word responsibility does not include guilt, fault, and blame, though that is what you heard. You must choose to take responsibility for your feelings and what goes on inside of you if you are ever going to change the patterns in your life and heal. My intention was to assist Richard in seeing that we all have a system of beliefs and ideas which is at the root of our reality structure. Most people talk to themselves all the time, yet remain totally unaware that they're engaged in an inner dialogue which both reviews and reinforces their beliefs about life. 
Some people are continuously figuring out how to justify themselves in that review before an inner judge made up of their parents, spouses, religious authorities, and any number of other people. What would the judge say if he saw me doing this, they asked themselves. Our internally generated reality and the nature of our continuous silent dialogue operate consistently and automatically in forming the basis of our decisions in life. Even the seemingly unimportant or trivial. I demonstrated the presence of Richard's internal dialogue by using the example of his reaction to the word responsibility. He was unaware that the ideas of guilt, fault, and blame came from his self-talk, his own silent speech. More importantly, it had never occurred to him that the reality in his mind did not necessarily match the reality shared by others in his life. Richard, our decisions in life arise from our internal reality and contribute to both creating events in our lives and generating our feelings about these events. To a great extent, people go through life oblivious to the impact of these inner beliefs and ideas on what happens. I invited Richard to look into the concept that our inner realities and self-talk are governing forces behind the life experiences we create. I suggested he examine his silent dialogue to determine its thrust. Many people have lives that include circumstances vastly different from what they would consciously choose. It frequently happens that an individual's self-talk and external talk are focused on what they do not want, and so they create their experiences out of avoidance. Avoidance makes an issue the number one priority in your mind because it focuses your energy on whatever you're avoiding. Richard appeared to be getting comfortable, doing some letting go. He leaned forward, resting his elbows on his knees, and was listening intently when a smile floated across his face. I'm not the only one that talks to himself all the time. No, you're not alone. You can become more aware and take charge of your internal process if you so choose. Correcting what happens on the inside is the key to creating changes on the outside. Until you take charge of your internal reality structure, you're bound to keep re-experiencing whatever you're trying to avoid, whatever's stored in your mind. Hiding what you don't want to experience inside guarantees a repeat performance. How do I create the changes I want? The first step is to correct your internal dynamics. I would suggest you change your thoughts about new ideas and let go of the chatter in your head that keeps you from hearing them. It's safe and healing to hear new ideas, and by doing your inner work, you will change some of the core interactions you have with life. The next step in the process of changing your internal reality is to be responsible for your self-talk. If it doesn't change, then experiences keyed to your old thoughts will keep repeating. Richard's admission that many times he had experienced the anger he was currently feeling was an indication that his self-talk was helping him repeatedly recreate some of the same realities in his life. By changing your internal dialogue, your reality structure will change, and so will what you attract into your life. It sounds like you're saying that in order to change the output, I have to change the focus and the input. You've got it, Richard. Everyone knows that in order to change the output of a system, the input needs to change. It does not seem to be common knowledge, however, that in order to change the input of the human system, the focus needs to change. You change your focus by changing your self-talk, and where you put your attention. When you take charge of what happens on the inside, you regain your power. 
If you think you need to stop other people from making you mad, you're going to have to change everyone who could potentially trigger your anger, and that is an endless task. Ah, tell me about it. To date, my efforts to change others have been futile. But I, I don't like being the one who has to do all the changing, the one who has to do all the work. What about them? Uh, I, I want them to do their fair share. The parts of your life which don't work for you now can be changed by simply doing the work we're discussing. That no one else has to change in order for you to feel good is probably the best news you will ever hear. You are the one who will have to do the work for you to be empowered. It's unnecessary to run away from life and keep cycling into the hopelessness you're experiencing now. There is something you can do and it is your healing process. As far as others are concerned, if they're in pain, they will have to find their own willingness. They will have to do their own changing and engage in the process themselves in order to experience their healing and empowerment, in order to change their lives. Two simple rules to remember, Richard, are if I'm in pain, I'm in error, number one. Number two, anyone who is in pain has work to do. Richard's confusion about how to create new experiences in life without changing other people is typical of the way most of us see the world. In every difficulty between people, there are two conflicting realities, two people in pain, two who must take responsibility for themselves in order to heal. A common avoidance tactic is pointing the finger to what someone else has not done while leaving one's own work incomplete. Richard let me know that what I said seemed to make sense but he was confused by the fact that his negative feelings only happened when he was with the women in his life. His hostility seemed to quiet as he expressed skepticism. I talked about how feelings are easier to hide when there's no one around to trigger them. I reminded him of the bridge analogy and that the bridge remains down when there is nothing to trigger its potential to elevate. We spoke of the work of a former IBM research scientist, Marcel Vogel, who was able to measure the high energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. Richard, I like to call those energy waves the psychic megaphone. Every reality in your mind sets up an energy wave to attract people who are in tune with your reality. The people we attract then trigger the reality within us, but the trigger does not cause our feeling, it only resonates what's already there. Richard and I explored just whom he was calling with his psychic megaphone to serve as his trigger. The primary area of examination was his long history of unhappy involvement with women. As we did so, he hooked into some strong emotions while he talked about his list of unresolved resentments. I've drawn some real winners. The women I'm attracted to seem very warm and loving, but only for a while. Then all of a sudden, they become distant, and no matter what I do, I can't seem to get their attention. That makes me very frustrated and and sad. Then I really get angry and then I attack. Richard had blamed the women in his life for his feelings of sadness and anger and was confused about why he only felt those feelings when he was in relationships. How? How could it not be their fault? Once you grasp that the ability the mind has to set up and distort its images, I think you will see how perception can be so far off base. One of the difficulties in understanding and seeing through our distortions is that we attempt to gain clarity without cleaning up the device that's doing the distorting, our own minds. One historical method to get past the inherent distortions in the mind is the parable. 
a word which in Aramaic means parallel meaning. A parable engages the mind with its literal meaning while the underlying message, which cannot be directly taught, bypasses the intellect and is understood by the part of us that is more than a mind. I'd like to share a parable designed to assist in grasping how limited current human beliefs are. It also helps build the brain cells necessary for functioning in a totally different way with different realities guiding us. Imagine a two-dimensional creature, one that only knows length and width. There is no height in her world. Length and width are the only dimensions she sees. We want to play basketball with this creature. As we introduce the basketball into her space, imagine yourself in her position. You have a limited view of what's going on in the world. You can see only the length and width of things. Your ability to perceive is narrowed by one dimension from your normal human perception. From a flat context, a three-dimensional perspective and understanding is impossible. When the basketball is moved into the two-dimensional creature's space, what does she see? Hmm. She's going to experience a, a flat line. Actually, perhaps just a, a dot at first, then a series of flat planes until she gets to the other end of the ball, and then it becomes a dot again. Notice that to our two-dimensional friend, while she experiences something, she experiences something that does not exist. When she sees a series of flat planes pass by, she sees something take place that never actually happened. A basketball is not a series of flat planes, though she experiences it as such. It is a spherical object. Now, let's go one step further. The two-dimensional creature has invented, in her experience of the basketball, a thing called time. For you and me, the basketball is just there. There is no experience of time involved. Since her perception is limited and cannot encompass the whole ball at once, she experiences one part of the ball first and another last. This is how time is invented. Suddenly, a thing that for you and me is a single experience requiring no time becomes time-bound. What for us happens in the same instant seems to be a number of different, separate experiences for a creature with limited perception. You might imagine that the two-dimensional creature names her separate experiences. She calls her first one Joe, another Mary. Each aspect of the ball, as it comes into her awareness, becomes something different. Its size, shape, nature, and character change with each perspective. As a result of limited perception, she invents and experiences a world that doesn't exist. Now that one can be a tough one for the human mind to grasp, and it is an important principle to recognize. If your perception is limited, you can experience something that never happened except as a perceptual reality in your mind. We are often taught to experience perceptual realities that don't exist anywhere except in our minds. We are also taught to externalize, to believe that those realities are true in the world outside of us when they are not. Imagine our two-dimensional friend's parents teaching her about basketballs. She's read all the history books. She's studied the basketball experiences of all the two-dimensional creatures. What does all this past speak of but events that never happened? A written chronicle of an experience that doesn't exist does not make it true. Basketballs simply do not exist as a series of events separated by time. They only appear to exist that way because of limited perception. 
Whenever one dimension is missing in a perceptual system, the output of the system is always distorted. Here's the question, is it possible, Richard, that having limited perception about an event, we could experience things that didn't happen? Well, I, I guess so. How do I go about assisting our two-dimensional friend to bypass the false realities in her mind so she can experience an actual basketball? Do you think that if I talk with her and explain what a basketball is, you know, what it's really about, that we'll be able to get her to come and play basketball with us? Is our explanation going to make any sense to her? When we tell her that her experience never happened, do you think she might be offended? I can hear her now. Who do you think you are? I've experienced the flat planes. I know. The difficulty, of course, is that she has experienced the basketball as a series of flat planes. How do you explain to her that she has seen something that doesn't exist? What do we do with that? Can we teach her about basketballs? Is it possible to give her enough descriptions of a basketball that she will give up all of her two-dimensional history, her experience, everything her parents, history, and all of her authorities have taught her? Do you think she'll say, okay, I believe you, I've been all wrong, not highly likely. Do you think any number of words that she can understand will explain the real meaning of the basketball to her? Obviously not, because her whole vocabulary is based on limited experiences and distortions of two-dimensional creatures. Her words only reflect the realities with which she is familiar. There are no words in her language for the three-dimensional perspective of a basketball. Think about this in our human terms. Do we have words for what we haven't experienced? No, we only have words for the experiences we have in common. If we were Floridians who'd never seen snow, how many descriptive words might we have for it? Perhaps three or four, which would be adequate for our experiences with snow. We wouldn't have a lot of descriptors because snow is not a major part of our lives. But if we go to Alaska and interview an Eskimo, things would be different. I understand they have some 70 plus words for snow. It's an important part of their environment. If in Alaska I'm going out to do some cross-country travel and you describe the snow conditions inaccurately, I might use the wrong snowshoes and perish. The realities present in the mind and the words used to represent those realities tend to be limited by the experiences of that mind. Let's imagine our two-dimensional friend makes the shift and experiences playing basketball. Is there any way she can explain to her friends what a basketball really is? Can you imagine her excitement? She's broken the chain of history and now comprehends the true meaning of a basketball. She approaches her friends and says with a display of enthusiasm, I finally know the truth about basketballs. They are, uh, uh, they, they, wait a minute. There aren't any words in our vocabulary that accurately describe the basketball. How can I speak to you about what I've experienced? You might imagine her saying things like, you know, there are so many things that I want to say to you, but you cannot hear them. All the words from our world aren't going to be of any use in her world because the words she knows, though based on the same actuality, describe a, a totally different reality. I agree, and this addresses both your question, how can life be so different from the way I perceive it, and our friend's question, how can the basketball be other than a series of flat planes separated by time? Well, now, how do you get around this predicament? Well, the best way I know is to persuade her to question everything she's been taught and experienced about basketballs. If she can recognize that nothing she has experienced ever happened in the way she has seen it, she has a chance of opening to a new perspective. 
If you can get her to remove every reality ever accepted by her mind and open to a fresh view of basketball, she might make the leap. We spoke of the idea expressed by Einstein that we live in a four-dimensional world. Are we as human beings actually in the position of the two-dimensional creature? Is our basketball called the world? Are we missing at least one perceptual dimension? Does that keep us from experiencing the world as it actually is? If so, could we study enough or would we even have any words about the actual world? Are we required to give up all of our experiences from the past in order to step into the truth about life? You know, what you present is sensible, but I don't comprehend the questions, nor do I have any answers to them. Uh, just trying to think about what you're saying is bewildering. Well, Richard, I ask these questions not to elicit answers, but to invite you to suspect everything you think you know or have experienced. Until we accept responsibility and grasp the truth about life, we make up all sorts of realities that are not true. Many people live in a perceptual world that contains reference points to the actual world, but at the same time are void of truth about actuality. Perception is an internal, made-up story which is externalized. It's, it's overlaid over the actual world. This action destroys the ability to experience actuality. People tend to cling tightly to their false perceptions as though life itself depends on them, which, in a sense, it does. The false life lived by many people is dependent on keeping the truth hidden. Hence, truth is its greatest enemy. We are born with a deep craving for love. Truth is required to experience love. If the truth is not allowed, love and happiness are impossible. When we deny truth, we engage in an insane cycle as we inflict pain on ourselves and miss out on the gifts life is offering us. Feelings are the feedback mechanism that tells us if we're in accord with or out of step with truth. And there's a quote, actually there are two quotes I'd like to share with you. One that happened in a play called Mass Appeal. A fellow named Bill Davis wrote that play. And, and the thought that he presented there was, now that the truth has been told, there's room for real love. Mahatma Gandhi, in his book, India of My Dreams, says this, all our activities should be centered in truth. Truth should be the very breath of our life. When once this stage is reached, all other rules of correct living will come without effort, and obedience to them will be instinctive. But without truth, it is impossible to observe any principles or rules of life. Feelings are the primary feedback mechanism for the human being. The goal of this work is to present tools with which to explore life, feelings, and the truth about the world. Our next goal is to demonstrate how to use these tools and inspire each person we contact to put them to work. Let's look at feelings from a different perspective than the norm. Feelings come from within. Mm -hmm. No one can make you feel angry, sad, afraid, or anything else. Others, however, can certainly trigger the cause of the feelings you experience. It takes a significant shift of mind to see that the cause of pain is internal. Grasping the truth of this premise is difficult because most have spent their entire lives investing in the belief that someone else has the power to make them feel.
The first step required to integrate any new idea is to let go of conflicting beliefs. No one can simultaneously take responsibility for his or her life while blaming someone else. Once the commitment is made to be responsible, the output of the internal mechanism is free to change. Reality changes. Richard, freeing yourself from the belief that any person, place, thing, event, or circumstances causes you to feel requires a new look at reality and an undoing of the clouds of the past. When you're angry, you've caused your own anger. When there's fear, the fear is of your own making. Oh, that's ridiculous. Why would I make myself angry? How could I make myself angry? My feelings are a result of what's happened to me in my life. Richard, would you be willing to do an experiment that's designed to give you a direct experience of what causes your feelings? Sure. Once you do this, there's no turning back to blame because its conclusion is so simple. It can be denied, but only temporarily. The direct experience lies in the mind as a seed that sooner or later bears the fruit of responsibility for every aspect of your life. I, I'm really not sure that I'm ready for that, but I, I guess it's time. Let's go for it. Okay, if you would, just close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to let yourself feel some feelings. First, let yourself feel sadness. Intensify the sadness. And then take a deep breath and let go of the sadness. Now let yourself feel anger. Intensify the anger. Take a deep breath and let go of your anger. Now go to the feeling of fear. Intensify the fear. Take a deep breath and let go of the fear. And let yourself feel pain. Place your hand wherever you're feeling that pain. At this moment, Richard placed his hand on his forehead as he held his breath. And now, open your eyes, Richard. Notice where your hand is. Your hand is showing you where you hold the energy that causes your pain. If you learn how to change that energy, healing happens. If you don't, that's where your disease processes will tend to manifest. But, uh... Well, well let me just go through the rest of the exercise before we get into a discussion. Okay. Just go ahead and close your eyes again, if you would, just for a moment. Mm -hmm. Take a deep breath. Just let yourself totally let go of the sadness, the fear, the anger, and the pain. And let yourself go to the feeling of joy aliveness and open your eyes that feels better how did you feel each of the feelings that you just had Richard well I I recalled an experience that had caused those feelings in me previously and what did you do to recall that experience what specific mechanism did you use well I don't know that I'm sure what you're asking well what happened in your mind to get you to each of the feelings you just felt well, I thought about something that caused those feelings. Is that what you mean? Yes. Notice, to feel a feeling, you had to think. You had a thought, right? Well, yeah. Feelings are shadows of thoughts, your thoughts. In the last two minutes, you had several different feelings, right? Yes. Okay. Whose thoughts caused those feelings? 
No, mine, I guess. Uh, but I had those feelings because of the event I thought about, not because of the thoughts I had. Yeah, it sure looks that way, Richard, but I think it actually works differently. What was one of the scenes you thought of to feel anger? I just had to think about my wife leaving me and being alone as a result of her action. Now, what if you were to think about her leaving and at the same time hold a thought, I'm ready to do my whole life differently. What an opportunity to heal. <laughs> I'd never do that, Michael. Well, after this experience, you might just change your mind. Give it a try. See what happens. Get into thinking about her leaving and allow yourself to generate thoughts of excitement about doing your life differently and the opportunity to heal. Think those thoughts as true, exciting thoughts about your life and see what happens. Uh, well, I'm not feeling angry. Actually, I feel anticipation about uh, how life can be. Hmm. Uh, well, but, but that's not true. I'm still angry with her. Notice, Richard, it's your thought about the event, not the event itself, that causes your feelings. You can choose to hold on to your angry thoughts, but when you do, you get the original. Your wife just gets the carbon copy. Your thoughts impact you first. Take notice, she's not here, to know what you're thinking, but each thought has an impact on you. Your feelings inform you of the nature of the impact of the energy of your thoughts on your physiology. If you're in pain, you're the one who's in error. My thoughts cause me to feel? <laughs> That's a novel concept. Well, let's take the principle a step further. If yesterday, last week, last month, or last year, you had negative feelings or pain, whose thoughts caused you to feel that pain? Oh, mine. If tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, you experience that quality of pain, whose thoughts will be the cause of your pain? Oh, well, obviously mine. Do you expect to experience pain at some time in the future? Well, of course. Won't everyone? Well, I'm not sure it's necessary, Richard. Why would you inflict pain on yourself? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, habit, I guess. Well, there's only one reason. Insanity. You mean I'm insane? To the degree that we each inflict pain on ourselves, Richard, we are all insane. The world teaches us insane thought systems, and in doing so, it teaches us to destroy ourselves. If we buy in and think insane thinking is normal, we will reach the conclusion that we have no other choice. Thoughts I would offer are a form of energy. Whenever you put a quality of mind energy into your physiology, you get a feeling that corresponds to that quality. Feelings are your feedback mechanism and tell you whether you are engaging in constructive or destructive mind energy. When you make a mistake, the feeling's negative. I would offer that you and I are made in the image and likeness of love, and there is no other reality that belongs in our human experience. Any other reality is a violation of the human structure and we destroy ourselves when we focus on disintegrative energies. We build our realities literally with each piece of mind energy that we engage in. The mind has the amazing capacity to turn our mind energy into the actual images we see. If you put hate, fear, anger, anguish, terror, criticism, condemnation, gossip, slander, or vengeance into your structure, that mind energy will turn into an image in your brain. If you're in denial, you'll think the image is about somebody else, though it comes from your physiology. Every image your mind produces explains where you are. 
If you can't own that, you will never be able to see yourself accurately and correction will be impossible. One of the goals of this work is to provide a variety of tools for correction. Just what do you mean by tools, Michael? Tools are concrete techniques or actions you can use to resolve upsets or patterns at the moment they occur. They are designed to provide a way to assist in creating joy and unloading the burdens most people accumulate in the course of their daily lives. For instance, taking responsibility is a tool. When you project responsibility onto another, the mind shows you that they are your problem. When you use the tool of responsibility, you resolve that projection because your mind will shift what it shows you about both them and yourself. Being aware that feelings are a guidance system is another tool. When you use that awareness, you tend to look at yourself accurately and are more likely to see yourself truly than blame others if your upset surfaces. A few of the many other tools presented in this work include my commitment, we'll talk about that a little later, breathing, awareness, and forgiveness. I could go on with a long list, but each tool will unfold in its own time. I'm confused. I understand. It's a lot to absorb at once, but the principles of this work are really quite simple. The seeming complexity and confusion of learning this new way of thinking come from the habit of holding on to old beliefs, which makes it difficult to integrate new ideas. Confusion does not come from the principles themselves. You know, truth is complex to a complex mind, and it's actually quite simple to a simplified mind. Example, did you learn traditional mathematics when you were in school? Yeah. Well, have you encountered the new math since then? Yes. I attempted to learn it and teach it to my daughter. Studying it was like going into a foreign world, and I felt pretty stupid when it uh, took me weeks to catch up with her. And she's only 12 at the time. Well, that's my point. With this material, you're being introduced to a whole new way of thinking, a new world, so to speak. You may even get a chance to heal some of that old stupid feeling as you integrate this teaching. There is a saying that you can't do new math with an old math mind, and in the same way, you cannot simultaneously take responsibility for your life while you blame someone else. Once you recognize your feelings are generated by your internal mechanism, you have the key to power over those feelings, and you can take responsibility for them. It is then possible to respond rather than to just react to life's triggers. When you're willing and committed to being responsible, you can change the output of your mind, and that action will change your reality. The way you feel will no longer be dependent on any person, place, thing, event, or circumstance. <laughs> that sounds great. What's the catch? Richard, there's no catch, but there are ideas you have to change. For example, you'll have to be able to see and deal with your hidden pain. You see, someone can only bring up a painful reality if it's already in your mind. It has to be there first. You can't pretend that all is well and continue to deny and hide from your issues. But the fact that someone can trigger anger in you is a sure sign something is hidden. Removing realities from the mind is the original meaning of the word forgive. In this work, when a negative reality is triggered, it is an opportunity to learn true forgiveness. When pain surfaces, if you're honest and in touch with yourself, you will own the upset and seize the opportunity to release that internal reality, the opportunity to forgive. Pain functions to inform us of our errors. False forgiveness is based on the belief that others are responsible for what we feel, and therefore it tends to reinforce that error. 
to forgive others in this manner for what happens in your mind leaves your pain intact and the opportunity to heal is lost. Making use of every opportunity to heal is an important decision you can make and that decision will immeasurably accelerate your process. <clears throat> Thanks, but I'll pass. If I have a painful reality hiding somewhere in my mind, I'd just as soon leave it there. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.